Welcome to Relax, Relate, Reflect About Big Questions with Daniel Bernardes. Today we're listening to an audio recording of a lecture by Marcel Canois at Amsterdam University College. Marcel has been a fly on the wall at Rabobank for two years. He had full access to the bank at all levels and wanted to answer the question, what has changed after the crisis? He has come up with an answer that avoids both easy external criticism and the bank's own marketing story. Even though his book was written in Dutch, his lecture makes its key points available to an English-speaking audience. The lecture has been split up into three episodes. In the first episode, Marcel introduces the genesis of the project and the methodology he followed. The second episode contains his main findings, and the third contains answers to the questions from the audience. You're now listening to the first episode on the genesis and methodology of the project. Please know that this is copyrighted material, you are free to share this file as it is, but not to modify, shorten or copy it in any way. We actually appreciate it if you share this file with friends, family or colleagues who might be interested. For more Relax, Relate, Reflect About Big Questions, visit danielbernardes.com. But now on to the lecture. Okay, so welcome everyone. Thank you for coming to this presentation of Marcel Canoa. He's a distinguished lecturer at Erasmus University and he has a past in health economics. He's done many things and he's uh, written for many uh, newspapers, very active in public day. And recently he's written a book on Rabobank. That's uh, right. And well, my first question to you would be, Marcel, why did you start to write a book about, about Rabobank? Yes, and, and that's a good question. My inspiration came from way back when I was a professor in health economics at the University of Tilburg. I realized that I was writing a lot about healthcare, but uh, did I really know about healthcare? I mean, of course, I know from reading books and from reading articles and talking to peers, and you have it, but I thought it was not enough. So I knew a guy who was a director at a, at a hospital. It was not a good hospital, by the way, but I had a sort of personal trust relationship with this guy. And so I told him, so why don't you allow me in your hospital for a couple of days and let me sh show me around, let me talk to the people, uh, both the real healthcare that's delivered eh, to the patients, but also uh, management stuff or uh, financial stuff or admin stuff. And so my purpose was, what do I learn from observing what's going on in the hospital? which has broader implications for the healthcare sector or for the healthcare in the Netherlands or for hospital care or for what have you. And initially I thought, well, maybe I will not learn a lot because I have the arrogance or the illusion that I already know quite a bit about healthcare. That's why they decided to make me a professor in healthcare economics. And I was actually quite, it's a little bit of a feeling between shocked and impressed what I learned just from being in a hospital for two days. And the people were very happy that they could talk to me because they had the feeling that they could trust me, that I was not there to write nasty stories about that hospital. But the deal was, I could write whatever I like. There were no contracts signed by me about confidentiality, although I received confidential information because, for instance, I was there when a patient was in the operation room. Now, I'm not allowed to write about that patient. But it's ridiculous to write a contract for something that you wouldn't do anyway. Namely, say that Roy Giegegak had an operation to his ear. I mean, that's ridiculous. There's no point in writing that 
And but there's also no point in letting me sign a contract for something that I wouldn't do anyway. And so, and since the director of that hospital trusts me, of course, I send them the articles. I, I wrote five articles about those two days. And if there was anything that felt at their side that I would not satisfy the trust level that they gave me, of course, they could tell me. And there were some minor things that they said, well, maybe you cannot, you change a little bit this and that. That was not because they wanted to change the conclusions and, or the direction, but because that would have been a bit sensitive to somebody. And since, so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm happy to change that because I'm, I'm not there to embarrass people. Eh? But the substance was mine and uh, they didn't touch that at all. This was healthcare. How do you go to... to okay, it's a long story, but it's very important. And I thought, if I do it for healthcare, and I did it the second time with the Ministry of Healthcare, and if I already learned quite a lot, even though I'm a specialist, I observed that the bank was a similar situation. In the banks, there were only stories in the media that how terrible they were, and that they were all crooks, and that there were, and that there were scandals. And, and then when the banks communicate themselves, it's all, oh, we are great. It's marketing stories. And I thought, well, I've been at this hospital, right? And I saw that, that things are much more nuanced than stories that you read in the press, but they are also more nuanced than marketing stories by the practitioners themselves. So why don't I do the same thing as I did with the hospital with the bank? Because, I mean, there's a huge world. And it's, banks are incredibly important institutions in the world. And you don't read what's actually going on there. And I mean, we have the crisis and it's obvious that uh, the banks misbehaved in, in the years around the crisis, but nobody knows what has changed. Uh, if I ask my friends, what do you think has changed in the banking world? They say, well, pretty much nothing. That's the public perception, right? If you ask the banks, they, they give you the marketing story. Oh, no, no, we are, we are really good guys and we do a lot of good things. Both don't tell you anything. So what you read in the newspapers is just only when there's something rotten. And when you listen to the banks, you get the marketing story. I thought, now nah, this sector is too important to leave it there because there's a huge world. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do that. Of course, I need their cooperation. And well, I don't want to take too long on this subject, but one way or the other, and it was also because I could show them that I already did this in healthcare and that I'm not a journalist, so I'm not after making uh, stories about how bad banks are. I just want to see what they do and draw conclusions from that. Now, I, so I went to ING, I went to AVN, and they didn't want to do it. And uh, Rabo said, well, it's a good idea. And we want to do it. And of course, it took a long time uh, for, for everybody in Rabobank to be completely convinced because they monitored and checked me 10 times because is this guy really uh, trustworthy? Uh, because they know that I have an incentive, a commercial incentive to make the scandals uh, a little bit bigger because the scandals sell. I'm not interested in selling, I'm interested in the substance. But well, they really need to, to trust me fully on this. So I did it and two years I worked maybe two, two days per week on average and I could do everything. I went to Tanzania, I went to Australia, went to Hong Kong, I went to the local banks, I went to Utrecht, where is the head office. I went everywhere and there were no, no contracts signed and there were no limits. So I told the boss of the Rabobank, okay, now I want to be at your ma next management meeting for a whole day. I said, oh, you want that too? 
All right, it's a bit tricky, but okay. We've agreed with this deal, so here you go. You can come. And so I was there for a whole day, and, uh, and they just do what they always do, uh, leading the bank and uh, taking decisions on whatever. And okay, there's this crazy guy there who sits there uh, making notes and writing stories about it. So for them, I mean, you have to, whatever you think about banks or the Rabobank in general, it's a courageous step to do. Because I am more or less known of, of not holding back if I, I think something. Uh, this gentleman over here, we've been in secondary school together. It's a total coincidence. I didn't know he would, would be here. Well, he will, he will know that I'm not the type of guy who holds back when I have a certain opinion. So for them to buy that deal is courageous. Why did they do it? Yeah, that's a good question. It's always asked. They say, well, are they crazy? I mean, masochistic that they uh, get this guy and then take the risk that he writes all sorts of things that nobody knows about. Well, there are three reasons. First of all, they consider me as a sort of free consultant because, of course, they need to change a lot in this bank. The, the world is changing very, very rapidly. Two days ago, Facebook announced that they will launch a new payment system with Libra. Now, that's a very, can be a, a serious risk for the uh, business model of banks. And so the whole world is changing very rapidly. And it's very difficult for a bank, uh, like an oil tanker, it's, it doesn't, cannot move around uh, so fast. So maybe he, the boss for Rabat, maybe after two years, he observed something, we can use it as a sort of reflection mirror and make changes a little bit easier uh, inside. The second reason is, of course, the banks have a terrible reputation to the general public. And the guy who was leading the bank thought, well, maybe through this book, I can show we have nothing to hide. Eh? So come, there are no limits to, of what you can see, uh, even confidential information, feel free, and we have nothing to hide. And this is a strong signal to the general public that maybe they are not such a big crooks that, as everybody thinks they are. So that's the second. Did they pay you to do this? Yeah, that's another classic one. I can tell you long stories about how many times this was asked to me and in sort of all, all sorts of direct and indirect ways. But no, I haven't been paid by Rabo. I decided to pay this myself, first of all, because I can afford it. And it's much better for me uh, because nobody will say, ah, he's writing this or that because he's paid by Rabo. And no? What was your third reason? You said there were three reasons they hired you or they wanted you to access? Yes. So the, fir the first reason is, huh? Free consultant. The second reason is that they, huh? they have nothing to hide. Yeah, they have nothing to hide. The third reason is that they hope, they are sufficiently confident that if somebody with proper intentions, i.e. no journalist, but somebody with proper intentions, see what's going on at the bank and writes about it, that the outcome of this I will not be so bad for them. So the second reason was more a general transparency thing. Uh, we are transparent. And the third one is more substance-based. They were not afraid that what I would write would be bad for them. And maybe I don't know what they think about it now, <laughs> but I still think they're okay. I mean, there are some things that I write quite critically about that maybe they don't love uh, about these things uh, too hard. But in general, I think they have the impression that they got a fair deal. And, and that they are not, that's not that bad. And were people like collaborating with you or were they kind of very reticent to, to share information when you were inter interviewing them? I was quite surprised. My, my first interview, it was very frustrating. 
Because I thought, okay, first I'm going to interview a guy who I already know at Rabobank. Eh? Because he used to be a colleague of my wife. And uh, he's even been at my house. It was 20 years ago or so. But, so it's not a close, close person at all. But at least it was somebody I knew. I was an economist and I'm an econometrician by training. So I thought, okay, let's start easy. Now, this was really, at hindsight, the most useless interview I had in two years. This guy was just talking shit. And I was really a bit nervous afterwards because I thought, well, if all the interviews go like this, I don't have a book. And because, I mean, I'm not going to write a book in which it is stated how great Rabo thinks itself. Nobody wants to read this. And also, it's not true. So, so what's the point? So I was stuck there. But after that, I was shocked that how open they were, actually. And apparently, it's the case that since it's also new for them, I mean, most of the people I talk to never talk to people on a confidential level knowing that it's going to be published, and their boss think it's completely okay. Yeah. So Wiebe Draaier, who is the boss of Rabobank, sent an email to the whole bank and said, okay, this guy we can trust, he is going to do this book. I find this book important. Please cooperate with this guy. And I saw this email, and sometimes it helps, because then he said, oh, who is this guy? I showed him the email. Oh, okay, good. Well, fine. And then they said all sorts of things. Because, and also the second reason why I had the impression that they were very open is I created a sort of safe environment for them. And the safe environment was not created only by the fact that their boss said it was okay, because, okay, that helps, of course. But my question was not very hostile, because it was very open, descriptive question. And so for an anthropologist, it must be normal. But I just asked, okay, tell me what has changed. And because that's what I want to know. I want to know in what sense has this bank changed since the crisis. Tell me, in your personal life, in your incentives, in the culture, in the communication, in how you treat your colleagues, how you treat your clients, how you deal with, with the regulators, what has changed? Just, just tell me. Now, nobody thinks that this is an aggressive question, which I, they can just tell me what has changed. And a lot has changed. So my friends, if you think nothing has changed, well, this is clearly wrong. You may have a different opinion in if everything is better, which is not the case either. Some things are better, other things are not better. But the idea that nothing has changed since the crisis is an illusion. There are enormous changes in this world, much more than, for instance, in healthcare. In healthcare, a lot of change, things change too, but much less than in the banking world. So about your methodology, you just ask questions or did you do anything else? Basically, yes. So it's a bit strange for, uh, I'm an econometrician, I'd already told you, but if you want to have an answer to the question, what has changed in the bank, the tools that are available for normal econometricians won't give you that answer. And so you can torture the data as long as you like, but they won't tell you what has changed. Or you can use other tools which econometricians typically use. So I decided, okay, let's try to play an amateur anthropologist because that has a much higher probability of giving me the answers. And of course, I cannot hide from the fact that I'm also a trained econometrician. So sometimes it helps because, I mean, as an econometrician, you are trained in logical thinking and drawing the right type of conclusions. When you talk to people that are allocated to you one way or the other, the, and now I'm going to talk about methodology, there will also be a few slides about that. You cannot claim that these people are representative for anything because they are not. I mean, even if you selected them randomly, 
I mean, that's not possible because then you have to control them in a control group. It's not going to work. So forget about representative and also forget about reproducibility. Both of them are very important scientific standards. Simply forget about it. Now, of course, I know that I forget about it. So I don't suggest in my drawing conclusions that on the basis of individual interviews, that this is representative for anything or that you can replicate this and then it will. Yeah. So you have to work around with this. For instance, if I observe something which is very good, right, which happened, I'm not going to conclude, ah, the bank does a very good job on this. I say, ah, I want to understand why is this good and why this, has this changed uh, since then. And so I then treat it as a, there are instances where, where they got it right. I'm not saying that they get it right because I only observe they got it right with this person. And I try to understand why do they get it right here? And why did they got it wrong yesterday? This already creates insights without overclaiming that huh, they, got, they got it right now. So this is how you treat the methodology. Can you please, can, can I use the slide? Okay, now, first of all, and, and this must be a good news for the anthropologist. Now, I quite like this one. And if you are in the Amsterdam University College, you are, of course, familiar with the different parts of the scientific ladder. And the mathematicians somehow are always on top. They think that they own the world, that they are the true scientists. And then sort of it goes to the left and the physicists, okay, it's just applied physics. Uh, it's nice to be on top. And then biology is applied chemistry. And the biologists, uh, they think that psychology is applied biology. Uh, I don't know where the economists are, probably somewhere uh, in the left. But the funny thing is then that the, uh, the whole left is the sociologist, uh, but the anthropologists are even way back to the left in this slide. I don't think that this is a fair representation of what science is about. And, and there are even scientists who say that all science is either physics or stamp collecting. And the, the problem is that science is a method for designing and testing ideas. Now, <laughs> what if traditional methods fail to generate useful ideas? Now, I spent quite a bit of time on methodology because I think it's, it's interesting. So I'm an economist who works a lot with non-economists. And that also is nice because it shows you also the, the weaknesses of economists. Sometimes it's easier for me to understand for economists who do this all the time and they don't talk to other people and they are happy where they are. Now, economists often use models. And there's nothing against using models and math mathematics. They use mathematics. There's nothing against using mathematics. But that's sort of their safe world. And there are a lot of instances where this safe world is fine. Because, well, it, it's tested and tested again. And it yields answers as long as you understand uh, what the limitations of this method are. It's fine. The problem is that they are so happy with their safe world that they also use the methodology in instances where I know already even without looking at the results, that this methodology is not suitable. Now, and the famous joke about economists is that they look for their wallet under the light. And so, they, so the economist loses their wallet in the dark. Instead of looking where the wallet is, which is the highest probability of where the wallet is, they look on the light because it's convenient, because there at least they can see it. It's not that the probability that they actually find it will be enhanced by the fact that they look under the light. Now, it's very typical for economists. They always look under the light, and it's fine as long as you're in a world where the wallet is more or less close to the light, and it's convenient that there's light. 
Now, if I know, and in, in the Rabo case, I know that the wallet is certainly not under the light. I mean, so if I look at the light, I know for sure I'm not going to find it. Now, that's why, I, uh, since I'm interested in answers and not in science or in economics, I use other methods which have a higher probability of finding my wallet. Now, if you want to know about culture and behavior of the bank, you have to talk to these guys. The way that I treat these interviews is I try to put them in a broader context without overdoing the results of the interviews themselves. And you can also cross-test. Eh? So if somebody gives you a picture which you think, well, I, I want to check whether this is actually true or whether this is an individual opinion of some person, you talk to somebody else. I also used outside experts. I have a team because I'm not even a banking expert. So I'm married to somebody who knows more about banks than myself. So I mean, it's uh, a bit strange. So I had a team of eight people, all of them outstanding banking experts on different fields. And I used them as sort of cross-check. Well, okay, if, if I want something, for instance, there's a derivative scandal. It's one of the scandals that Rabo has been involved in. And I had some guy who was in the derivative committee. So he is an absolute total expert on the drift. So anything I write about that, I show him and say, does it make sense? And so in this way, you can, you can work around uh, with uh, both using anthropological methods, but at the same time, testing it and checking it and making sure that you don't draw the wrong conclusions from it. Sometimes you have to be modest and sometimes you can be a little bit more ambitious if you are convinced that you're right. It's not science. I don't call it science. It's a book written for the general public. It's not written for uh, peer-reviewed journals. I am not a proper anthropologist. I mean, Roy is a proper anthropologist. I'm just an amateur, but I use the methods because I think they suit me. This was the first episode in which Marcel Conoir introduced the genesis and methodology of his book, The Bank of Good Intentions. In the second and third episode, you'll hear his main findings and answers to questions from the audience. For more relax, relate and reflect about big questions, visit danielbernardes.com and sign up for the free newsletter there. Feel free to share this file as is with friends, family and colleagues. Thanks for listening.